This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. This is the third episode of Season 2, WealthFest, the weekly Bull and Bear. We're recording on Saturday. I'll start us off with what happened on the market yesterday on Friday the 8th. And what we saw really was Dow was up a little bit. So 6.44 points ended the day at 27,681. Uh, the S&P was up as well, uh, a little bit higher, um, 7.9 points, which for them was you know 0.26%. So that S&P 500 ended the day at 3,093. Uh, VIX has continued to fall. That fell 0.66 points or 5.18%. Um, ended the day at 1207. So year to date, we've actually seen the VIX drop 52.52%. Uh, so Friday yields, you know, were up a little bit. Um, they ended the day at 1.945. But what was really the takeaway of the week, I'd say, is what happened to yields on Thursday, where the 10-year yield jumped 15 basis points to 1.96%, which represents the biggest jump uh, since the 20 the 20 basis point um, move after Trump was elected back in 2016. So I'd really like to start the day with a conversation about what yields have done um, now that, you know, we got some income and also how that affects uh, the inverted yield curve, which, you know, has been the metric we've been talking about the last few months. And with that, I'll open the conversation up to Grant so we can dive deeper into uh, 10-year Treasury yields. Yeah, so the recent rebound in the 10-year rate to just under 2% corrected the yield yield curves inversion. We saw the 10-year and the 2-year about 25 basis points spread, as well as the 10-year and the 3-month spread to be about 38 basis points. I think that the positive trade headline was a catalyst for this with the trade with China and US agreed to cancel some of the additional tariffs here with maybe a phase 1 being signed uh, in, in December. And then also, I think a big thing is the Treasury Department announced that they're going to issue or has auctioned off $19 billion worth of 30-year bonds, which is definitely definitely something to, to look at. Also, with the Fed cut three times, we saw that you know shorter yields like the two-year are not as rising as fast as longer durations bonds, which might also impact why we've seen uh, increase there in the 10-year. In the yeah. And I guess one date we should mention of significance is August 1st, right? So analysts, for the time being, they're seeing an upward trend, but they don't see the 10-year moving above 2% as much in the short term. Uh, remember, the high watermark to look at was August 1st, in which our 10-year was at uh, 2.06. And on that day, two very important things happened. One was uh, the president tweeted that we would be instituting new tariffs on the Chinese and also on that same day, that became the first of what would later be three uh, rate cuts from the Fed. Right. And on a historic level, you know, the curve is not that steep. Uh, but, you know, we've seen the, the three-month to the 10-year spread move by more than 90 basis points from that point in late August of inversion. Let's talk a little bit about how this has affected commodities, uh, notably gold and silver, which had been on the up and up, but recently... Prices have sort of collapsed. Um, we saw that on Friday, gold was down $9.45 uh, an ounce. So it ended the day on Friday um, at $1,459 an ounce. On, on Thursday, it actually dropped as much as $30 an ounce. 
and we have to look at the high of September, um, you know, when, when yields were still significantly lower was at uh, over, it was $1,552 an ounce for gold. So Grant, why don't you just kind of, you know, just a refresher. I mean, I think everyone's kind of got like a working knowledge of, you know, how gold uh, really works as a harbinger for for volatility and inflation in general. But how about we explain the dynamic a little bit and why we're seeing gold collapse as much as it is when it's been a bull market for the last few months? Absolutely. Well, commodities can be used to diversify a portfolio beyond traditional investments like stocks or equities. Um, they can be used as a long-term play, but more commonly they're used to park cash during volatile or bear stock markets. So therefore, commodities traditionally move in the opposite direction as stocks. And so as we're currently seeing equities rise and gold and silver's price decreases, this would be normal. Um, so I think investors are starting to feel a little more cuff, co comfortable in moving out of, the, out of the safe havens of commodities. So while the short term we've got solid market data, um, Morgan Stanley has alluded to the fact that it sees its stock market returns lowering over the next decade, um, largely based on you know what valuations are now. But if with their analysis, they're looking at a 60-40 um, split, right? So 60% in equities, 40% in inked, uh, fixed income. So they're seeing annual gains of 2.8% over this time. Uh, which is about half the level it's been over the last couple decades. Uh, and, and what they're hypothesizing is that the S&P 500 index is going to return 4.9% per year, and they expect 10-year treasuries to be um, yielding 2.1% a year functionally. Yeah, the big takeaways for that are low growth, low yields, and low inflation, low inflation are expected to constrain results, uh, returns. So you know, further, what they what they found was that lower sovereign bond yields were dampening the ability for fixed income to offset large decreases in equities. Uh, so investors are looking at a lower and flatter efficient frontier over the next decade, which will impact overall overall returns of the portfolios. Yeah, and there's other metrics we can look at too when it comes to our equity pricing. You know, um, at Wealthfest, one of the ones we look at a lot is the Shiller PE is a price per earnings ratio that's cyclically adjusted, um, accounts for inflation, and looks over a 10-year rolling period. So uh, right now, it's 78.8% higher than its historical mean of 17. So on Friday, that was number was, you know, 30.4. Um, so they look at an eight-year forecast. So if we were to reverse to the mean, we'd actually be seeing in terms of equities, we'd be going down 2%. Um, if we were really lucky, you know, we'd be getting that 2.8% um, returns per year. And if we're really unlucky in terms of we're looking at the, uh, the hypothesis is that could be as low as 9.8%. Uh, yeah, I also thought another takeaway, which I thought was a little interesting, is that what they forecast is that the UK equities had the highest potential for return, even with the negotiations with Brexit still still occurring. So there definitely that could change. And then followed by emerging markets. What is your take on the current situation in emerging markets, Drew? Right. So, I mean, if anyone's kind of seen the asset class uh, spreadsheet, you know, that I think it's JP Morgan that does it, but consistently and, you know, what asset class has returned this year versus the others. Uh, we know when the dollar is strong and U.S. equities are performing, uh, emerging markets are don't do so well, uh, mostly because they don't have a large source of investors, right? So it's typically, you know, Western domicile, like European investors or American investors who are now 
going into the S&P 500 and then they don't have enough of a domestic demand to kind of bolster their stock prices. But I mean, I think emerging markets right now are in a trap where the media always kind of highlights that they're crisis prone. So we can talk about what's going on with Argentina, which is uh, just had a new election and is once again in a debt crisis. I mean, we can look at the African National Congress in South Africa, which, you know, is the leading political party, but it's very factioned. So you've seen a great amount of policy paralysis in South Africa when when you really need these reforms um, to open up their markets and, and to to kind of move from, from emerging to more of a developed route. Um, of course, Russia is a slow growth story, and it's also heavily concentrated on the oil sector. So, I mean, depending on what the oil market's doing is really what Russia's output is. So you always have these stories. Oh, and then, you know, of course, you add stories like Argentina, where there's, there's another debt crisis. But I think the fundamentals are a little bit stronger in the long term than and then people are alluding to. I mean, when you look at uh, The Economist, they broke down the 25 emerging markets that, you know, they really show highlight as the indicators. And uh, most of these 25 have inflation below 4%. So right now, the only two double digits are Argentina and Pakistan. So this huge inflation is really an anomaly. And in terms of short-term debt, they've really um, also been able to lower that too right now. So according to the IMF, you see the average emerging market has a public debt of 54% of GDP, uh, which is you know about half of what, what, what rich and developed countries have right now. So I think that in terms of, you know, just fundamentals and in terms of some of the old liquidity problems we saw with getting exposed to developing markets, I think those have been placated somewhat. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things to remember as well is that on the brink of these defaults, foreign investors are trying to exit, but then they can't because there's not enough demand by domestic buyers. Um, so a lot of these investors are chasing the same assets. They're, you know, safe safe government bonds, investment grade bonds. Um, and then the more that investors cram into these markets, the greater risk of a rush to, to exit is. So I think that that's why we're seeing this, this volatility in, in the emerging markets. Yeah, I mean, you break it down just by a price per earnings ratio, right? And so the price per earnings um, ratio for the MSCI index of emerging market stocks is is below its average since, you know, the 1990s. Um, so in terms of value, it, it actually looks, you know, fairly attractive. And um, I think in the next few years, I think we'll kind of see uh, an emergence of, um, you know, once, once if the Indians get their bank problems fixed and if... Uh, if China's got, you know, fixes its supply line issues largely due to trade, I think we once again see a resurgence of emerging market, um, you know, stocks. And I think that people will once again look to, you know, peripheral economies of China. So, you know, the Southeast, but then also India. And I think I think you can get some returns if, 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 if you're if you're exposed to these countries. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about the inflation, we've been talking about the yields. Uh, so JP Morgan recently stated that, you know, Treasury yields will kind of surge in a manner similar to 1995. Uh, Grant, what do we think about this? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. Strategists saw 
you know, one percent up on the on the ten year, and then also they could see stocks rising about five percent. I think the key thing, the assumption that they're making uh, for you know the U.S. macro environment is that it remains in a mid cycle adjustment. Uh, so that needs to have continued strong employment numbers as well as consumer confidence. And also one big caveat here is that manufacturing rebounds with trade talks and then also continuing steepening of the U.S. yield curve. So we'll also need to see if, if investors buy into this and, and start buying more equity funds and, and selling bond funds. Yeah, and, and we've seen also a decrease in negative yielding uh, bonds after last week, right? So French and, and Belgian 10-year treasuries went up. Uh, as did Germans, um, German, but Germans remain in the red. They're still posting negative yields on their tenure. But um, the French, for example, are, are are now in the green at least as of Friday. So um, I think we're going to see a lot of you know what was kind of a crisis of negative yields. I think that's going to be abated a little bit as 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 countries post higher yields. And with that said, you know, so we're having we're seeing. Um, we we always talk about you know potentials of recession. Uh, we we should note that at least in terms of Bloomberg economics, this has been downgraded slightly. So, I mean, we were looking at what happened in in uh, it, it dropped recently to a twenty six percent chance within the next twelve months. In early October, it was at twenty seven percent. So that's, you know, higher than it was a year ago, um, but it's, it's also much, much lower than it was in the last recession. So, you know, we'll continue to keep an eye on what's going on. But um, what do you think about this downgrade in recession risk, Grant? Well, I think recession talk has been on investors' mind with the, with the trade war and then also less corporate investment. But there are also signs in the U.S. economy that are easing fears of recession. For example, a strong labor market and, and also strong consumer confidence. If we look at inflation-adjusted wages, that continues to grow at a healthy pay, pace. And if we compare that before the Great Recession in 2008, we saw real wages, wages excuse me, have a sharp decrease from a softer labor market. Um, so those are definitely things to things to look at. Also, as we discussed, you know, last week on the podcast, one sign of concerns is thinning thinning corporate profits. So if profitability begins to decline, companies will have to make cuts, which may lead to a decreasing in hiring and, and layoffs. And then also what we saw with the SOM rule last week, recessions are, are linked to a swift increase in the unemployment rate. So this will be a key indicator to look at moving forward. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think wages are definitely a factor. On, I mean, it, prior in 2008, right, you saw, you saw decreased decrease in, in, in wage inflation. But then right before that, we actually saw a little spike in inflation as well. So right. um, we're not seeing that right now. So those are two factors. And then um, and then we've also alluded to, you know, earlier on this call, and what I think, you know, people are looking at is, is the inverted yield curve. Um, so that's placated some of our, some of our, uh, what could be conceived as a pessimism in the market uh, for the short, short term. And, um, and yeah, yeah, people are getting some yields. So, so I think that's a good thing. Obviously, that recessions are chance down to twenty six percent. But of course, we have to look at these issues in the coming months. Um, one big thing we talk about this every week, and I imagine we will for for the foreseeable <laughs> future. But some of the optimism has also come with, uh, with, with in regards to you know the U.S. and the Chinese trade talks. So, China has agreed to roll back tariffs and. When they 
you know, we saw a spike in the markets on Wednesday after that happened. Uh, and then there was a little bit more uncertainty because then Peter Navarro um, and, and the president indicated that the U.S. won't uh, remove some of their tariffs, at least until we're done with phase one. Um, Peter Navarro said that any, you know, indication that was happening is largely the Chinese, you know, using language to kind of influence the Western media in terms of, you know, pushing us to put in a position that we don't have. Uh, and he said, until the phase one isn't really done, we're not going to see we're not going to see us removing tariffs. Um, so, I mean, so yeah, I mean, what do you think, Grant? Yeah, so it's funny because the Chinese are saying that both sides have agreed to start drawing back some of the existing tariffs on one another's goods, but then we saw Peter Navarro come out and and say the opposite. So I think there's a lot of news flying around about this. We see, you know we see negative news about the deal being signed, being pushed back to December. Uh, but then we also hear that both countries are going to gradually start reducing tariffs. So I think it's really important that we see if this deal goes through because now investors are, are expecting it to happen, right? We saw the Dow Jones increase as well as the tech sector increase last week. Uh, but you know, if, if there's a big change in course, I think we're going to see an increase in volatility again. Yeah. And, and so when you look at Peter Navarro, and if, if you've been listening to any of you know what he's been talking about. He really frames our issues with the Chinese uh, from the standpoint of seven deadly sins, right? So sin number one is intellectual property theft. Two is forcing technology transfers. Uh, three is the issues rounding around hacking and computers. Four, um, just simple, you know, the trade balance we're dumping, dumping into markets and putting U.S. companies out of business. And then five is, you know, Chinese increase state-owned industry subsidies. And then within the last two issues, six is the fentanyl crisis, which is coming from um, the China functionally, and seven, which is uh, currency manipulation. Now, in terms of fentanyl, this isn't really as much of a macro, you know, econ, econ topic uh, as, as currency manipulation or, or of course, um, you know, the, the trade balance issues. Um, but we should mention that while this isn't even really part of phase one, uh, going with the fentanyl, what we saw is the Chinese actually acted proactively on fentanyl con conviction. So they sentenced three of their nationals to maximum punishments. Uh, one of the one of the people who's been convicted uh, is sentenced to death with a two-year uh, reprieve, and then a couple of his accomplices have gotten life sentences. So it almost seems like the Chinese in terms of fentanyl, at least, are taking a very proactive um, stance in order to uh, kind of lessen some of the some of the other issues that we have with them. It's it's really encouraging and it's a good start. You know, nine sentences is is definitely a step in the right direction. But I think this is a major should be a major discussion point with with our discussions with China. You know, it's an epidemic in the United States. We're seeing thousands of overdoses, and the fentanyl supply is largely coming from China, even though they claim it's not. Um, however, you know, there is a fantastic article in the New York Times called The China Connection that describes how a DEA agent was able to penetrate one of the main suppliers and actually was able to track it down from China. So it's actually a pretty incredible story, and I, and I think that it's a, it's a good read. But the, the fentanyl crisis definitely should be in talks with China because it is an epidemic in our country. Yeah, when we break down some of the massive social problems our country is facing, I think, I mean, fentanyl's obviously one of them, but, you know, it's 
part of the wider drug overdoses. I mean, you had 70,000 Americans lose their lives last year to drug overdoses. So this is a number that's more or less rivaling uh, auto automobiles and um, gunshots combined. So it, it and, and we've actually seen our life expectancy decrease over the last couple of years. And then, you know, this adds to what's already a huge issue regarding to our prison population. You know, we have 22% of the world's prison population roughly, and we're, you know, little less than five. So we're four and change percent of the world's prison population. So if, if what is a major problem in these, you know, this trifecta of, um, you know, of, of mass incarceration and, and drug overdoses, and then lastly, economic uncertainty, if we can use this as a way to leverage the Chinese to help us out with, with one of these problems, and, and they're one of the perpetrators of, of this problem, I mean, amongst, amongst many causes, but I think that's certainly a good thing for both for our society, but also for larger uh, trade talks and geopolitics. With that, I think we should move to kind of the last segment um, of our conversation in which we'll talk about potential trade breakups. So, I mean, it's it's not so much, I, I mean, you, you have candidates, especially Elizabeth Warren, who have talked about breaking up um, big tech companies. And I don't just see, in terms of the policy process in the country, I just don't see this happening legislatively, but I think we should in the short term, but I think we should address some of the fundamentals of if we do, in fact, break up some of these tech companies and what that would mean for for overall market cap and also for producti- productivity as, you know, a lot of these companies would be a little bit more agile. Um, and and if you look at the sum of the parts, and I'm sure Grant will get into some of this analysis, but these companies are actually relatively undervalued for if we're looking at, you know, Facebook as an entirety as opposed to if we're breaking it up from, you know, WhatsApp and the Instagrams and if they were their own companies. So, Grant, let's kind of get into some analysis on what breaking up big tech would mean in, in what is an era of um, perceived monopolies. Yeah, so I think if we if we take a dive into Miss Warren's scheme or, or strategy here, there's really two parts. One is to is to break up some of these big tech mergers that are anti-competitive. So if we look at Instagram being bought by Facebook, as well as WhatsApp, she'd like to unwind those, as well as DoubleClick, an advertising exchange bought by Google, and then also Whole Foods, a grocery store acquired by Amazon. Um, so the, that that's the first part. And if I think of that myself, I think that you know, Facebook bought Instagram, and they're completely two different platforms. And I think the combination of those those two platforms had really grown, grown the innovation of those. And then the, the biggest question mark I have is, you know, how was Whole Foods a competitor of Amazon? You know, if if and if anything, Amazon was pretty good for the consumer there because they were actually able to slash their prices, so you wouldn't have to go do your whole paycheck to to shop at to, to shop at Amazon. So that's a that's a little concerning there. And then also, I think that the second part is, so she wants to have the operators of online platforms. Um, therefore, if, if they're the creator of the platforms, they can't sell their own products. So if you think about Amazon, they have the largest e-commerce marketplace, and then they wouldn't be able to therefore sell their products. Apple would not be able to sell apps on the iPhone app store. And this is the one that really has me scratching my head because I just think the this just overall decreases innovations, right? Because if you create a platform and then you can't sell on it, why would I create the platform? It's going to cut huge, 
huge investment into these platforms. And then also, I think that, you know, from a capitalistic standpoint, if why wouldn't you be able to sell sell your products on on something that you created? Um, not to mention, I think the breakup is going to be really tricky and also impact the shareholders of these companies. Yeah, no, I, I, I do think in the short term, I mean, so I don't think it's going to get done through Congress, right? So a lot of it could be de facto from what we're seeing on a just in terms of a legal level, right? People filing antitrust suits and if, if in with there is a breakup. But I mean, as as we alluded to, I mean, in 2012, Instagram was procured by Facebook for what was just one billion dollars. And, and they paid 19 billion dollars in 2014 for WhatsApp. Well, I mean, Instagram right now, I mean, depending on the analyst, there's guys in Silicon Valley who think it's, you know, exorbitant amount of money, but then there's people who are who are pricing it at a couple hundred billion dollars. So, I I mean, I think any way we break up these behemoths is going to be tricky, but I do think there is a lot of, you know, unrealized um, market capitalization. If we're looking at the sum of these parts, I think, you know, you're looking at market cap of Apple, one point, you know, nine zero nine trillion facebook's you know a little over half a billion amazon's over 800 billion close to nine and alphabet you know is is a similar valuation to amazon i mean i do think if we scratch the surface and some of these companies were to exist on their own i i do think that it could in fact uh really really add to shareholder value and really add to market capitalization but it could, but if you look at if you look at Apple, for example, you know eighty six eighty six percent of their overall uh, you know revenue is from the hardware, whereas only about six percent is the Apple Store. So you're going to strip that out and and have the Apple Store stand stand on its own. And then also, you know, if you look at Facebook, you know, a, a large part of their revenue is from core advertising. But then if you look at WhatsApp, WhatsApp was completely integrated as part of Facebook's messaging system. So therefore, how are you going to value that? Because it's not a it's not a revenue revenue source. Yeah, I mean, and companies are going to make the argument, right, that Facebook's going to say, hey, if we have to part from WhatsApp, why aren't you forcing us to part with Instant Messenger, which is very much a Facebook creation, but it's was an add-on to the platform. So, I mean, they're going to have... Logically, of course, I mean, there's, they do have a case. Um, I don't know. It's just, I, I do think the bifurcation or, I am worried about how, how when, when companies get that size, if you look at, you know, like a kind of a scaling up matrix, I do think innovation does get hindered when you get to a certain scale. But then, of course, you know, we've also alluded to all these problems that would, would occur with a forced breakup. I mean, it's not going to be, it's going to be kind of messy any way we go about this right now. Either we're really suppressing um, potential shareholder value and innovation, or you know we we're you know functionally throwing the baby out of the bathwater, and we could go in a way in which we're really suppressing innovation by by choosing how these how these entities are broken up. Yeah, I, I I think the biggest one is you look at Apple or or Amazon and and to have these platforms and then tell them they can't sell their products on it. I think that that's going to drastically impact the the innovation and continued growth of these of these platforms. Because if Apple just stops building apps, I mean, what is that what is that going to do to the to the app marketplace? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess what would we be without without Mail and Maps and and it's tough to 
find actually, I mean, some of the apps, how much value they're bringing in the first place. So, so I think valuations are trickier when you look into a lot of aspects of the tech center than they are in, you know, traditional brick and mortar, you know, institutions. But Definitely. Breaking up the different revenue sources of each company will be, will be tricky. Um, and, you know, and then we'll finish our conversation. It's per usual on what we're, uh, you know, looking forward to. Um, I know Grant was recently reading about what happened to McKinsey and company. So I'm going to kind of let him, you know, talk about why, why this is such a big deal to what is, you know, the most renowned consultancy uh, on the globe. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this how this happens. You know, McKinsey is now facing criminal inquiry over some bankruptcy cases. Uh, so we have prosecutors in, in the Justice Department in New York and Washington looking in to see if they've used their influence on a consulting basis over insolvent companies to see if they actually used used their power in order to profit from these instead of actually looking out for for their clients um, i think that this is a big shakeup also because we look at them consulting pg and e right now which is with all the forest fires in northern california as well as california are are looking for looking for help and and so this may impact what they're able to do there you know overall their their brand is probably one of the highest valued in terms of consulting on a global basis. And if, and if a criminal lawsuit comes of this, I think that that could drastically impact their business. Yeah. I mean, I guess some of the things that I'll be looking at this coming weeks is uh, kind of reoccurring debt crises like we got in Argentina. But then, of course, uh, we'll be keeping an eye on um, what's going on in, in the primaries as well. Uh, February is going to be upon us sooner rather than later. Uh, you have a really divided Democratic Party, um, whether it be what their platforms are, but also uh, how, how to respond to the impeachment probe. So, I mean, that will affect markets, um, and the outcome will definitely affect, you know, any, any market trajectory we might have. Um, with that, it would be great if you guys could subscribe to the podcast. Um, it's on the podcast app. We also send out the PIPA links. It's on Stitcher and some other platforms as well. We will be sending this out on Wednesday, uh, as per usual. And with that, have a great rest of your week. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.